Amen. Well, I'm almost a month old American. We, we became American citizens just a few days after. It seemed to me like a prophetic sign. It, we're, it certainly moved us in a tremendous way. Let me just say something about, one more thing about the next school of the word. I have felt to change the format somewhat in what I'm proposing to do, and others have already agreed with me, is that we would have three sessions in a, a, a somewhat slightly longer morning. Then we'd have a complete break, and then we would come back in the evening. That's all except Monday evening. We will not do that Monday, but on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, we would have three sessions um, in the morning, and then go for a somewhat later lunch, have a complete break, and then we would come back in the evening and we're going to invite people from the city to join us. And then in the evening we're going to have an actual full-blown demonstration of the Tabernacle of David. It's just, it's just going to be a glory night when we're going to put into practice the things that we've been teaching during the day. Now the purpose of this is that you can take it back to where you come from. And I hope that by the end of today you will have become fully convinced that this is what God is saying right now. And as we raise up these tabernacles of David in our own localities, then we're going to see a tremendous shift in the spirit realm, which will leave, enable us to take our cities and our regions just as it happened in the early church. Okay? So just think about that, and uh, you might think, well, this is a time where I really make sure say the worship leader comes or someone like that because uh, we're going to and we're going to uh, put together by God's grace a, a very uh, tremendous group of prophetic musicians we're going to be looking for certain prophetic people to be available so that we can functionally move in this and uh, uh, what God has shown me is that there are uh, seven dimensions to David's tabernacle and it isn't just an extravagant place, place of praise and worship. It certainly is that. But in addition to that, it's... Um, see if I can remember them all now. <laughs> it's, it's a place of, of prayer for the nations. It'll be a place where the sick and the heal and the, will come and they'll be healed right there. And we're going to make one of those three nights particularly a healing night. And I'm going to make sure that the anointing which is upon me is, is in full flow. I'm going to get one other guy to make sure he's here who moves particularly in this realm. We're going to see, we're going to see wonderful miracles because that's part of, the, part of the dimension of David's tabernacle. It's going to be a place of rule and government where we speak decrees in the spirit realm which will immediately be enforced. It's a place of powerful spiritual warfare. How many is that? Is that four? Number five, it's a place where all bondage and legalism is totally taken out of the way. That's number that's five. How many, how many more are there? I've got two to go. I know I've got seven on my bit of paper, but uh, I can't think what the other ones are. That's six, is it? Okay, that's six. And um, see if I can think of the seventh one. I can't think what it is for the moment. 
Yeah, well, that's the first thing. But it, it's all those things. Anyway, I, I'm not going to try and teach it now, but, but God, God showed me all these things. And, and uh, where this is beginning to be practiced, it is, because it, around the world, these things are happening. We're way behind in these dimensions in the United States right now. But as we, re, as we get released into these areas, you'll see the phenomenal power of God just move in ways that we've probably never experienced before. And I just feel it very much upon my heart and uh, I just long for you all to be there, but even if you're not, we'll, we'll make the videos and we'll do our utmost to send it out as a, as a uh, practical school that can be implemented anywhere in the world. Okay? Well, let's now go to, to day four of your notes. It's page 32. And I want to spend the first part of today, we've got quite a bit of ground to cover today, I want to deal with the the four phases of the kingdom. As I began to study this in more detail, God showed me, and I, I hope to be able to show you clearly, that there were four distinct phases. And what's more, you can see the church worldwide at one of these four phases. The first one I'm going to deal with very, very quickly because we've dealt with it already. And that is what I have come to call the John the Baptist phase. Now, John the Baptist was able to announce the kingdom. He saw how desperately the kingdom was needed and he was able to verbally rebuke the wickedness and the evil of his day. But he was never actually able to change what he saw. In fact, the powers of darkness which were opposed against him, they were so powerful that he ended up becoming a casualty of those powers. The, the spirit that worked in Herodias had him put in jail and finally beheaded. And that was the end of his ministry. And I see that certain churches are at that level. They are able to see the kingdom, talk about the kingdom. They're able to rebuke verbally the wickedness that they see out in society. But far from being able to change it, they are being overwhelmed by that evil. And I've seen so many churches that go to war without the proper preparation. The church disintegrates rather than society being changed. Because remember what I said the other day, that the moment the kingdom begins to manifest, Satan comes against it violently. The first experience of the kingdom is that it suffers violence. And therefore we need to be uh, uh, wise in our defence strategy as well as in our attack strategy. One of the great things about Nehemiah was that when he began to rebuild the city, he had a wise strategy of defence. He put swordsmen all around the walls and particularly where, where there was a low spot and he, everyone had to be a builder and a warrior. It wasn't any good just being a builder. You had to be a builder and a warrior. You had to have a trowel for building in one hand and a sword for fighting in the other hand. And I believe God is wanting to bring the church and particularly the pastors and leaders of the church into this kind of warring mode because these are the days that we're in. So it's not enough to know how to build, you've got to know how to fight. Hello. And if you don't know how to fight, what you build will be torn apart by the devil and you'll be left with nothing but ecclesiastical ruins. So we cannot stay in the John the Baptist phase, although much of the evangelical church still is. And in these recent uh, events of the, the, the attack upon our nation, there's been a, what I'm going to call 
a strong, angry John the Baptist response from certain quarters, but there's been no plan or strategy of spiritually how we're going to deal with these things. Amen? I'm not going to spend any more time on that because I think this is fairly well understood and I think all of you agree that we're not staying there. Amen? If you came to this conference with that attitude, then uh, I'm sure by now you've been convinced that it's time to move on. Now I want to move on into these other three phases which begin at the bottom of page 32. The moment John the Baptist came to the end of his ministry and not a moment before, Jesus then moved into the next phase of the kingdom. It was the, the beginning of the establishing of the kingdom. And it's very, very clear if you read the Gospels carefully that Jesus never tried to bring the kingdom in while John the Baptist's ministry was continuing. Well, maybe there was just a slight overlap but he never tried to establish the kingdom until that John the Baptist was out of the way. And, and, and you've got to understand this too, that, you, that, that although God installs things and they are from heaven and they have a divine purpose, that doesn't mean that they are to continue forever. There was a moment when God said to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now you go in and take the promised land. And there had to be a move from Moses to Joshua before they could cross the Red Sea and begin to possess. Moses had been preaching about this for, for decades, but he couldn't take them in. And then there came a moment when that came to an end, and then the actual generation that was going to enter the Promised Land was suddenly raised up, and the leadership for that generation was raised up, and they went forward and took what had only been being preached about formerly. And so you can look possibly back to your own background, you can see that your particular denomination, your particular movement that you grew up in was so clearly ordained of God, so clearly brought to serve God's purpose for a season. But that does not necessarily mean that in its present form, it's going to continue forever. It may just have been there for a season and now we have to move on. When I... Um, first became a Christian, and just before I went out to India, I was brought into contact with quite a well-known man whose name, an Englishman, his name was T. Austin Sparks. And he was responsible, really, for mentoring Watchman Nee, who became this great apostle in China. He was also responsible for mentoring an equally famous Indian apostle called Bhakt Singh. And I actually was sent out by this movement, and I went to India to work with Brother Bhakt Singh and to, to establish um, high-quality colour printing presses to supply the literature that we needed. We were the first people ever to print the, the right or the speakings, actually, of Watchman Nee. They were translated into English by a, a famous man of God that I was privileged to work with with a number of years. His name was Angus Kinnear. A Scotsman who worked with Watchman Nee was thrown out of China by the communists and then came to live and work in India. So I saw all these things with my own eyes and the, the, the teaching and the revelation of Austin Sparks was absolutely amazing in its day. And I heard him once say from a, a, a conference rather like this, he said, one of the tragedies is, he said, the last great move of God is often the main opponent of the next move of God. And that's a tremendous truth because he had suffered such terrible persecution from his Baptist and brethren, uh, you know, the Plymouth brethren, brethren. But he'd come out and he had a revelation of sonship. He had all kinds of revelations. But the strange thing was that when I got baptized in the Holy Spirit, he was the first one to cut me off. 
And that was incredibly painful for me. Because I, and I, I still do, I admire and, and, and receive so much from this wonderful man of God. But he'd got, he'd got into the very trap that he himself was talking about. So don't think that it's not easy to get into a trap. And, you know, this present move of the charismatic movement can, can be the main opponent of the next move of God. And we need to make sure that we are uh, flexible enough to hear God, to thank God for all those wonderful godly mentors. The Pentecostal movement was so clearly and gloriously raised up of God at the beginning of this century, but it is not where God is powerfully moving right now. That's not to say that a certain church or a certain uh, sector of it cannot move with God in the new thing. But to do that, it's got to abandon what it had so gloriously held in the past and embrace the new thing. And I prayed when I saw this, I said, God, I never want to be the kind of person that's fiercely defending the last move of God and resisting the new move of God. I always want, by your grace, to be on the cutting edge. And I don't think I'm deceived in thinking that I'm still open to whatever God wants to say or do. One of the things that I'm seeing around the world, and it's just beginning to happen a little bit in America, is the powerful way that God is using teenagers. Powerful. And they're seeing things and doing things that, that leave us absolutely breathless. Yeah. I was with Franz Lippi in, uh, we were in Sarajevo together just a few months ago. And there's, there's an amazing move of God amongst the teenagers of Sarajevo. They're all nominally from a Muslim background. God has visited those kids from, from the age six upwards to 15. These are the main advances of the kingdom in that terrible torn city. And I was with France and, and I was a privilege to see one batch of these kids come from school to come to this particular house of a wonderful lady called Elvira who's the kind of spiritual mother of all these kids and they'd come running from school just to get to a prayer meeting to praise and worship God and prophesy and lay hands and see healing miracles. And then the other batch of kids who are about to go to school, they come an hour or so early to get involved in this same prayer meeting. I've never seen kids like this. They're not here to crayon or pass the time. They're here to get hold of God. And, and France asked me if I would kindly pray for some of these key leaders. There was, about, there was five of them that stand out as leaders amongst this group. And I said, sure, I'll be glad to pray for them. But the trouble with me is, inside me, <clears throat> there arose these enormous prophecies of, of this being an apostolic team of one of these, I think it was a 15-year-old girl, was going to be a Deborah who was going to save her nation. This, and I thought, I can't say these things to kids. And, I'm, and I didn't want to say it. <laughs> but it, 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 it came out of me. And, and like... Like Balaam, I found myself prophesying <laughs> what I believed was far too big and grand for such children. But it came out of me and, and I picked one out to be a, an evangelist, another one to be um, a, a, the pastor. And I didn't know these kids, but apparently what I said was so apposite to what they were. And, and we basically prophesied into existence a teenage apostolic team that was going to take the nation. Or oh, I prophesied. 
And then I, a few weeks later, I had an email from uh, France to say that this group had gone down to Montenegro. You know where Montenegro is? It's that bit of disputed land between um, Croatia and between Serbia. And there it's a very troubled, troubled spot, a very difficult situation. These kids went down there. <coughs> and began an evangelistic move that God was powerfully anointing. There was some older man who'd been a faithful Pentecostal all these years and years and years, never seen anything happen. And when these kids came in the power of God and, began to, and God began to use them, he just became jealous of what God was doing through them. Became crabby and bad-tempered and, and God came and, Jesus came and appeared to this man and rebuked him for his wrong attitude. And he was broken to pieces by this visitation of God, became absolutely humbled, ran to the barn where these kids were staying, knocked on the door, I think it was in the middle of the night, and pleaded to be let in, and he said, I just want to apologise to you kids, um, I, I'll stand on my head, I'll do anything, you know, I, I just want to recognise the anointing that's upon you. And while they were all gathered together, Jesus appeared again, visibly to these kids and to this man, and then apparently he almost repeated word for word the prophecies that I'd spoken in Sarajevo. Now that made me repent. I thought, well... <laughs> I mean, I didn't feel blessed. I felt, I felt ashamed that I'd been so unwilling to speak the word of God to these kids. When, so Jesus came personally and said, well, if you won't do it, I will. And I felt embarrassed and humbled and I needed to realise that something absolutely phenomenal is beginning to happen amongst young people. And they may teach us many things. In, you, you listen and watch the young people of America. God's going to touch them in a way that's going to leave us breathless and amazed. And we better be careful not to get in their way. Amen? They'll need wisdom, they'll need guidance, but we better not restrict them and hold them back from that zeal and that faith which God by His Spirit is pouring out upon them right yeah. now. Amen? So let's move on to in, in our notes and see the next stage. The moment that, that uh, Jesus that Jesus was baptized by John, and, and I could say a lot about that. Let me just quickly say that the baptism of Jesus, like our baptism, is a baptism of identification. I always like to use it in terms of a marriage ceremony. Jesus was not baptized to put to death the old man because he didn't have one. And he wasn't baptized to wash away his sins because he didn't have any. But by his baptism, he was, he was immersed in total spiritual identification with Adam's race. This was the completion of his becoming the last Adam in order to bear the sins of Adam's race on our behalf. It was the completion of his total identification. And that's why he went down into the Jordan where all the sinners of Adam's race were seeking to get their sins washed away in those waters of Jordan. He went and if you like, immersed himself in the sin. Do you understand? Can you see the picture here? Became totally identified with them in that act. And as the only sinless member of Adam's race, if you can understand what I'm saying, you understand what I'm saying here? Because he became... Uh, as we shall see fully on the cross, the debt payer on our behalf. But this was the first man that God had ever had who lived in perfect obedience to everything that he wished. He was the beginning, for that reason, of the manifestation of the kingdom of God. What Jesus in his earthly life was, was what Adam could have been if he'd stayed under the rule and government of God and had never ever responded to the temptation of Satan. 
So all that Jesus was on earth and all that Jesus did on earth was potentially possible to any man who would live in perfect obedience and submission. And he began the recovery of this lost world by his obedience. And because he had never sinned and because he had never stepped out from under the rule and government of God, as a man totally related in obedience to the Father, he was absolutely impregnable. The devil could not touch him. He couldn't inflict anything upon him. And the power of Jesus' impregnability was in the power of his obedience. Now remember that when we ourselves come into the kingdom. If the devil can harass you and your kids, there's something wrong in your submission and obedience to him. Now there are God-given, God-allowed uh, sufferings. There are God-given, God-allowed uh, sacrifices which we are called to make, which of course Jesus finally did when he became obedient even to death upon a cross. But the devil can't harass us. He can't mess us around. He has no more in us than he had in Jesus, providing we will live in that same obedience. And as that man of the kingdom, and I pointed this out to you the other day, he came to show us really what the kingdom's like. But he could only show it to us to a limited degree for, for two reasons. Number one, you can't really show the kingdom in individuality, not in its fullness. There has to, the kingdom comes into its full power when it's manifested corporately by a group of people. And that was not possible for Jesus because there was no other one at that time who could live in the same relationship to the Father that he lived and have the same um, power of the kingdom upon him. So he demonstrated the kingdom to a degree as the perfect obedient man. And he was now recovering, if you like, by his activity that... Um, all that Adam had lost by his disobedience, by one man's obedience, there was going to be a recovery of all that was lost by one man's disobedience. Amen? But the, no, the sphere of this was on earth because it was the earth to which God had given Adam rule. He was, supposed to, was called to rule over all that God had created on earth. That was his sphere of authority. And I want you to see that during the earthly life of Jesus, he was restricted to that sphere. And that's why, for a second reason, you never see the full power of the kingdom. Because he was now limited to the sphere of earth and only on earth could he deal with what the devil was doing. He did not at that time. This is where many people get confused when they're teaching on intercession because they don't realize that this was a temporary thing. It was not a permanent thing. And so you find, for example, in um, Luke chapter 5, when they bring this lame man to Jesus, he's been praying all night, and he's created this tremendous atmosphere where the power of the Lord was present to heal. And let me just say this, that, that God showed me that every, every verb to do with the prayer life of Jesus and to do with the prayer life of the church, every verb that teaches about prayer life, it's always in, in Greek, it's always in the passive voice. God said, you go through the whole New Testament and look at the voice of every verb to do with prayer. And it's always in the passive voice. Now, the passive voice in Greek is a very interesting voice because what it, what it speaks of, it speaks of an incompleted action. 
that requires something else to bring it to completion. Now, I asked God, I said, God, give me an illustration so I can help people. So this was the illustration he gave. Just imagine, he said, that you are erecting a tent. And to erect the tent, you have to nail tent pegs into the ground. He said, now, here is, a, is an illustration of the middle voice. Alan held the tent peg. That would be in the middle voice. Now, why am I holding the tent peg? Because I want John to come and hit it with the mallet. My purpose in holding the tent peg is a temporary activity because I want John to come and hit it with the mallet to bring it to completion. Okay? So what God was showing me was that the prayer life of an individual, the prayer life of a church, produces an environment of miraculous possibilities, but the prayer life itself does not produce does not by itself produce the miracles. And so if you are just a praying church, all you will produce is a possibility of great things happening, but you'll never see the great things happen. All right? Then God said to me, he said, now go through the New Testament and look at all the actions of faith. And I found two things about the verbs here. The first thing I found was that when it comes to becoming a person of faith, then every verb is in what's called the passive voice. And when you come into the... You don't mind me giving you a Greek lesson here, but it's very practical, and it's very, very practical to taking cities. And so a passive voice is... is it, the subject of the sentence is having something done to them by someone or something else. So, if we think of this for a moment, here's Bradley in the front row here. And I come to Bradley and I lay my hand on him. Now, we would say in the passive voice, Bradley had Alan's hand laid upon him. He was sitting there in passiveness and I came and did something to him. And he was the beneficiary of my act. Have you got the picture here? So all through the scriptures, wherever you find this thing of faith, like it says in Romans chapter 4 and verse 20, it says Abraham was empowered with faith. That was, it was the passive voice. It says in Hebrews 11, 11, it says Sarah was given power to conceive. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for me. In other words, we're being told that real faith is not in any human being. It has to come to us as a gift from God. So we don't try and generate faith. We become good receivers of God's faith. And when I teach on this these days, I have a football. And I have written on the side of the football, God's faith. And I take the football, and I've learned somewhat to throw in American football, although I still prefer rugby, but never mind. <laughs> but I, and I'll throw this football. i say, right, who wants to receive God's faith? And I'll throw it. And if they are a good receiver, they get it. Hello? And God's saying to all of us in this room this morning, if you want to see the power of God come to your cities, you better start receiving God's faith. He'll give it to you as a free gift. But what you've got to learn is how to be a good receiver. You've got to, how to how, learn how to take hold of that faith and take it into your being. And then once God's faith gets inside you, you start seeing things the way God sees them. Once Abraham was empowered with God's faith, then it tells us in verse 21 that he became fully persuaded that what God had said, he was also well able to perform. Now, 
previous to that, when God said what he was going to do, Abraham could only laugh in incredulity. But the inflow of God's faith turned him from a laughing sceptic into a totally convinced man of faith. And he became a man of faith not by anything within himself, but by receiving what God graciously gave to him. And that's why any one of us in this room, we can become men and women of faith, not by trying to generate something within ourselves, but by learning to be good receivers of God's faith. And when we've got God's faith in us, then what God has said to us, which before seemed impossible, we now, like God, say, oh, that, that's a cinch. I'm fully persuaded that what God has said, he's also well able to perform. Now we come to the third God said, now go through all the acts of faith in the New Testament and see what is the voice of the verb. And without exception, I found that all the acts of faith, the verb is in what's called the active voice. And the active voice is someone who does something. And in the story of the <coughs> lame man, when Jesus had prayed a tremendous atmosphere of the possibility of people being healed, then four men picked up their sick friend and they carried him into Jesus' presence and that was the act of faith that led to the miracle. Hello? Now, their act of faith was equally necessary to the prayer that produced the climate of the possibility. So we've got to have the kind of people that having received the faith of God will now step out and do things in faith. And when you get all these three things together, you've got a miraculous, powerful church. Now it normally takes me an hour at least to preach that. Did you understand it? Have you got it? Because it's so relevant to this situation. And so Jesus, now on earth as a man, is producing by his prayer life the climate of possibilities, but he knows that when he's finished his three and a half years of ministry, he's going to go and be with the Father, and the one thing that he's got to leave behind him is some people who understand about faith. Otherwise, the kingdom's finished. Because every step of the kingdom has got to be a step of faith. So all the time, he's looking to push people into the act of faith. Like Martha, you roll away the stone. Now, why did he do that? Because he wanted her to be the, to be, he produced the climate of the possibility by his prayer life, but he wanted her to produce the action which produced the miracle. You roll away the stone. Philip, you feed the 5,000. Can you see, I want to push you. I want to push you. I want to push you. So you start the acts of faith because Jesus could, of course, done it himself, but that was not going to help them. And we as leaders, we've got to learn to be pushing our people. You see, if you are self-centered, you want to be the source. You want to be the healer. You want to be the source. But if you are like the Lord Jesus, you want to push other people all the time. You want to broaden the base of faith activity so that marvelous works are taking place by the people that you've been privileged to mentor into that same life of faith. Does this make sense to you? Yes. So this is this next phase of the kingdom. It was Jesus on earth as the new Adam, if I can put it that way, recovering to that level of the kingdom which was possible by a man simply walking in total obedience to the Father and reclaiming back from the devil all that had been lost by, by Adam's disobedience. He had power on earth, it says in Luke 5.24. He had power on earth to forgive sins, 
to cast out demons and to heal sicknesses. But at this level of the kingdom, he had not yet come to a place of authority in the heavenlies. Hello, and listen to me. Because that's another phase that we're going to have to move into. Now, some of the church has got this far. They know how to move on earth. They know how to deal with demons that are harassing people. They are reasonably successful in casting out demons that cause sicknesses and diseases. They're starting to move in the power of the kingdom and seeing some of the works of the kingdom. But in this particular setting, the demons, the principalities that rule in the heavenlies are totally undisturbed by this. And that's how Jesus lived all the three and a half years of his earthly life because the phase of the kingdom which went into the heavenlies had not yet come because he had not yet provided righteously for that to happen. So let me say this very, very clearly. For us to want to be like Jesus on earth and to use that as the measure and the standard, while that may seem fantastic, I tell you, it is not good enough for God. At that level, you can cast out demons that are harassing people. At that level, you can see people, drug addicts, alcoholics, sick people, you can see them transformed. But at the same time, while you're doing this, there's this cloud of dark oppressiveness over your city, which is snatching people back as fast as you're rescuing them, and which isn't really changing the climate or the environment of the place where you're working to try and bring the kingdom in. And it can be a very frustrating work because you see some success but you almost see as much loss as you see success. And that's the place where many, many churches moving in the power of God are because they've never understood their need to move to a different level and begin to enter the heavenly realm which is a different ball game altogether. And some intercessors will teach and have confused a lot of people in this present move of God by teaching them only that we are permitted and allowed to relate to this level of the kingdom which we see manifested in the earthly Jesus Christ. They even teach that it's illegal to think of going into the heavenlies. And I want to show you by relentless biblical logic that that is a limited view of the kingdom. And that will never change our society. It'll just give us a measure of success, but it will also give us this constant sense of living, 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 living into battle situations where we lose some, we gain some. We lose some, we gain some. We gain some, we lose some. And this is where many, many pastors are. With all the best will in the world and with dedicated prayer lives and dedicated compassion for the lost, they're fighting this battle at ground level and they're being damaged as much as they're seeing success. And many of them get so weary, they give up the fight. And we've got to go from here to something much greater and much more powerful. Does, does that make sense to you? Yeah. All right, there's, there's some good notes on this, I haven't, which I think will help you to understand this. Now, just to mention that in this setting on page 33, he was even able to expand the kingdom by sending out the 12 and the 70 to move in a delegated kingdom authority. And when I was watching, and I saw Jesus in Luke 9 send out the 12, notice he only sends them to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, which we will come on to later, because we've got to also deal with the Jewish phase. And then, within a chapter of Luke, he then sends out the 70. He sends them out two by two to go to any city and town that he himself will come. He says, now you go, you heal the sick, 
you cast out demons, you raise the dead, and you tell people the kingdom of God's come. And when I read through that, <coughs> I said, Lord, how did you do that? Before you went to the cross. And so the Lord said this to me. He said, I used my Calvary credit card. <laughs> That's what he said. I use my Calvary credit card because, see, we've got to understand that the cross isn't just an event of time, it's also an event of eternity. Yes. Although there was a moment in history when it happened on the clock of time, we're also told from Scripture that he was crucified before the foundation of the world. There's an eternal dimension of the cross that's very hard for us to comprehend because we're so limited in our thinking. We, think, we even think of eternity as a long time. Eternity isn't a long time. We shall be there when we've been there 10,000 years, says the song. That's not what eternity is. It's not a long time. It's an eternal now. Now, it's very hard for us to grasp because we've never lived in that sort of dimension. But, but God, that's where God is. And so, in the eternal realm, God provided the perfect sacrifice for sin in our Lord Jesus Christ. When it happened in the moment of time, it had its effect from the beginning to the end of eternity, if I can even use that sort of terminology. So you've got to think of <clears throat> things on earth running according to a time clock, but in the realm of the Spirit, it's always an eternal now. So every word that came out of the mouth of God, for example, through a prophet 2,000 years ago, it's spoken with the throbbing life of an eternal now. It's in the spirit realm. It's like God is saying it now. Because there's only a now dimension to eternity. Does that make sense to you? In the same way as Jesus shed his mighty blood and perfectly paid as we're going to see, not only for our sins, but permanently and powerfully dealt with all the power and all the authority of the devil's kingdom. That also is an eternal now. And from this realm of time, by the activity which the Bible calls faith, we can reach into the realm of the spirit and take hold of God's eternal nows and they immediately become relevant and powerfully manifested on earth because we've taken hold of them by faith. For example, I do not believe for many prophecies there is a moment of time when they're going to be fulfilled. There are times when they're fulfilled again and again and again as people reach into that eternal realm and say, I'm going to have this now. And when they get hold of it now, it becomes for them a manifestation in this time-space world. For example, it says in the scriptures, and God spoke this in the eternal realm, so it runs from eternity to eternity. He says, if any man is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. It's past perfect tense. It's a done deal. It's gone. Everything has become new and everything's become, everything's of God. And here's this recently converted drug addict that's still, you know, on alcohol and cigarettes and gets up at three in the, in the afternoon and slops around and, and, and still hasn't got no control over his life. And you say, well, where's this new creation? And the answer is, it's in the realm of the spirit. And the day or moment in time when that newly touched man or woman 
sees the truth of what God has said and grabs hold of it by faith to the degree that it becomes pulled from the spirit realm into the realm of the now time world, then, boom, it suddenly becomes manifested. I told you the other day how I got my new clean mind. After decades of polluting my mind, in one second, seven years after I was born again, I laid hold of my inheritance of having the mind of Christ. And it was the moment that I grabbed it by faith that it became manifested in my time-space world. Abraham reached into the realm of the Spirit and obtained salvation through Christ 2,000 years before it took place in time. Because it's always there in eternity. Amen? Amen? In the same way, David reached into that eternal realm and grabbed hold of the new covenant and began to live as a king and as a priest under his God, looking not to the Levitical priesthood, but looking to the, to the Melchizedek priesthood and lived as a new covenant believer for three, 33 and a half years in the tabernacle of David, which was totally illegal because he'd gone through time to grab hold of the new covenant and live by it a thousand years before it was ratified at Calvary. Amen? Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. So you mustn't divide your Bible into, oh, that's Old Testament, that's New Testament, because some of those men who lived in what we call the Old Testament were already New Covenant believers because they'd penetrated through the time barrier to get hold of these eternal things and live by them. The tragedy is that there are many people living in this day who are still prisoners to the Old Covenant because they never laid hold of the New by faith. They're still living according to law and trying to please God by the things that they do. And trying to produce fruit by their own activity rather than just loving Jesus. And it says in the scriptures that, it, that out of the union between ourselves and Christ, we bear fruit to God. So it's the intimacy of the love life that produces the genuine fruit. That's why we're told in Isaiah 54, rejoice, barren one that does not labour, just rejoice, and you're going to have many more children than she that works and works her way according to law to try and produce something. So when Jesus saw all the vast need and the vast urgent need for the kingdom to come, at least at that earthly level, and here he was as the only man on earth at that time that could move in that kind of uh, anointing. He said, oh Father, just give me some kingdom authority on these men. And, and he said, look, I'll tell you what I'll do. He said, look, here's my Calvary credit card. Here's the promise to pay. I want credit on what's going to happen at Calvary in this time-space world right now. And the father said, son, you're credit worthy. There's no doubt about it. There's no, in fact, he said, there's no credit limit <laughs> on the cross. So he took, if you like, the, the power of the kingdom and vested it upon these 12 before he had actually legally made it possible by what he did at the cross. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. So he had 12 men working on credit. He was going to pay later for it. And it was so successful, he thought, this is great. So he said, well, Father, can I have 70? He said, sure, you can have 70. <laughs> so he's now got 82, or depending on which manuscript you read, some say 72, so say 84. And Jesus says, makes 85. So here's 85 men moving in the power of the kingdom. And you can imagine they're giving the devil a real headache now. But even this 
even this is still at the earth level and at this level of the kingdom they're not yet authorized and empowered to deal with the demonic principalities in the heavenlies. That's why when you come to Luke chapter 12 you will find that Jesus is by no means satisfied. Come to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 and verse 49. This is what he says. I came to send fire on the earth <clears throat> and how I wish it was already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am until it's accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to bring peace on the earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. And in the Matthew's version of this, he says, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. I've come to make war on the devil and his kingdom until there's not one vestige of it remaining. But, and I can do quite a bit now to that manifestation of the devil's kingdom on earth, but I can't really accomplish the job until I'm in the position to deal with the heavenly realm. And for that to happen, I need a new baptism. It's not the baptism in water that's already taken place. He's talking about what's going to happen at the cross. He's going to take upon himself the sins of Adam's race. He's going to take them down into death. And then he's going to rise again as this glorious new man. Now that's what he's looking to. And then he says, then I'll be able to set the world on fire. When I get that set in place, the kingdom is going to come to an entirely new, much more powerful level. Now, does, do you understand that? So all those wonderful days of the ministry of Jesus and of the 10, uh, then of the 12 and the 72 he sent out, he still viewed them as the days of his constriction. And what it literally says, that word in Greek is, I'm, I'm constrained, I'm shut in, I'm, I'm hampered, I'm hindered, I'm, I'm sort of tied up, I'm not free to fully be myself. But when you come to the Ephesian letter, and chapter 1, verses 17 through 23, the Apostle Paul is now wanting the believers to see what they have become in his risen life. And then, when we've got that revelation, he then says that this, which happens through the cross is the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So he sees this as the fullness. He sees this earthly level of the kingdom, powerful as it is, wonderful as it is, and very impressive. And I can tell you, most people would be entirely satisfied to see it at that level, but God is not satisfied. Because it just means that you're fighting a war with success and failure. But you're not taking out the enemy, you're just out shooting him and having a measure of success with a measure of loss and measure of casualties. Now that's where much of the church is, even the church that's moving in the power of God, even the church that's seeing great healing miracles, even the church that's seeing great deliverances, even the church that's seeing wonderfully people liberated from drugs and alcohol and, and a percentage of them becoming new creatures in Christ, it still isn't the full power. And Jesus was not satisfied with it. So he wants to move on, okay?
During his earthly ministry, in the middle of page 33, Jesus had not yet ascended into the heavens to take up his throne, and it had not yet become his domain of authority. The demonic powers that ruled in the heavens over Jerusalem from their long-established gates, and we're going to look at the gates later on, they were not thrown down, and they continued to resist the coming of the kingdom. Only a few became his obedient disciples. We know that in the end, when Jesus told his disciples to go to the upper room and wait, or tarry, or more accurately, to cathedzo, until they were clothed upon with power, out of all the tens of thousands who were experienced his powerful healing miracles, only 120 were willing to really obey what he said. So he produced a church of committed tithing, church attending, I'll come to the special meetings kind of Christians, of 120. In fact, he wasn't doing any better than most of you are doing in this room. <laughs> now, that's the truth. And the reason was because the, <clears throat> the reason was the demonic powers in the heavenlies were not yet addressed because he had not yet come to the place where they could be addressed. But when they are addressed, then the whole dynamics of Jerusalem totally changes and it'll be exactly the same for your city. Because at the moment, even if you're seeing a powerful move of God and you're seeing mighty miracles in your church and a few people getting saved, I think as I've described this earth level of the kingdom, it, it sounds rather like the situation that you find yourself in. And you found that the devil's come against you and you split your leadership team and you've gone through pain and difficulty. He's dried up some of the finances. He's got people who were the best tithers to move to another town. And you say, hey man, there's still a fight on you. You don't have this sense of ruling and reigning with Christ. You have the sense that you're fighting at ground level with a very fierce, powerful enemy that has no intention of quitting. You're hitting him a few times and making him bleed, but he's hitting you a few times and making you bleed. And it's a fairly equal contest right now. And so we've got to move into a whole new dimension to really see the power of the kingdom. Is that making sense to you? All right, so we want to come now to the third, king, third dimension of the kingdom, which is the risen King Jesus with authority in heaven and on earth. When Jesus was risen from the dead and appeared to his disciples, the first thing he said to them was this, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go you therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, while he was on earth, he never used that terminology. He had power on earth to forgive sins. He had power on earth to cast out demons. He had power on earth to heal. But he did not have yet power in heaven and on earth. But once he was risen from the dead, his his vocabulary changes completely. And I want us to first of all understand what happened to him, and then we're going to have to learn what that means concerning us. I'll do some of it now, but we'll have to break in the middle of this. But I, I, I've got so much to cover that I don't want to break early. Is that all right? All right, let's, let's come to the bottom of page 33. Jesus died bearing in his body all the sins and the sin nature of Adam's race. I think we all understand that, do we? It says in 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore all our sins in his body on the tree. 
It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he who knew no sin became sin. So it wasn't just the acts of sin, it was somehow the mystery of the nature of sin that was put upon the Lord Jesus. Now that was what he shrank from in the garden. I do not believe he was shrinking from the pain of Calvary. He was shrinking from the, the, the sullying, the dirtying effect of sin. That cup which the Father showed him, as I prayed and meditated on this, it was to me like God took all the foul, filthy things that Adam's race has ever done from the beginning to the end of time. And you think what Adam's race has done in terms of, say, the, the Jewish Holocaust, for example. You think of, of, the, of the sex shops. If you've ever been into Thailand and seen the perverted sex there, or just go to California, it's pretty stinking horrible there. You think of, of the cruelty that's been poured out by one race upon another down the centuries, by one tribe upon another. Think of the appalling things that have happened recently in Rwanda between the the Hutus and the Tutsis. You think what's been happening in Kosovo. Think what's been happening in the Balkans in our recent time. You, think, how can, you read some of the stories of the incredible cruelty. I mean, I remember reading once, in fact, this was told me personally by, um, oh man, Billy Graham's son, Franklin Graham. He, we were sitting together in a, a TV studio and he, he told me that he'd just come back from that area and he said that this appalling thing had been videoed by these men. They'd got, a, they'd got a father and a whole family and they commanded the father to rape his own daughter. He refused. So they killed him. Then they got the eldest boy and said, now you do it. And, he said, and, and they gave him the understanding that if he did, they would let them go. So he was in this terrible dilemma. So he, he's forced to rape his own sister. And then when he's raped her, they then, they then gleefully kill him and then they cut the legs off the girl and leave her to bleed to death and they're filming all this on video so they can enjoy all these juicy details. Now what kind of insane, uh, uh, I mean, ugh. Now what I want you to see is that for sin to be paid for, the wrath of God had to be satisfied. That's, a, that's an old-fashioned term that isn't very popular these days. In fact, some of our modern English translations even like to avoid the word. They talk about expiating sin. They don't talk about propitiating sin. But the Greek word has the idea of satisfying wrath, of an angry, outraged God having to be satisfied that justice has been done concerning those evil, wicked acts. And for justice to be done, someone has to fully pay. And so the first stage of this, or, and I tell you, we need to ponder this and let it sink in. I think we're far too trivial about the cross. God took the whole totality of Adam's race and all its sin and, and concentrated it into, into this cup and said, right, son, you better drink this. And he was going to become foul and filthy with every act of sin that you can possibly heinously imagine man's ever done. And Jesus, the sinless one, looked at that cup and he said, oh, if it be possible, let this cup pass on me. It wasn't the pain of Calvary, it was, it was the dirtying of Calvary. Now, the nearest thing that I've ever got to this personally, and I told some of you this, and I can't remember where I said it, but if I'm repeating it, please forgive me. But, but I was ministering to a, a, a most depraved man I've ever met, sexually depraved man, in a conference in England. He had 
He was homosexual, he was heterosexual, but he was just, he was just ravingly seeking intercourse by any means with anyone. He'd even had intercourse with animals. And God had saved him. And he'd come to this conference, or, or he was in the process of being saved. I'm not quite sure where he was, to be honest. But I got the job of, I, I was in charge of what's called, we called the pig pen, which is where we cast all the demons out of people. And I had this man, and the two of us, another man and I, we had him all night. It took all night. And these demons were coming out, and the demons were screaming and resisting, but they were coming out. And we were getting a little bit weary. And I remember, as we were just losing our, our energy, that the, the Lord Jesus came, and I, and I still remember this, it's one of my most one of my precious moments, because this demonized man, or the demons in the man, cried out, He's come! And I could feel a soft touch, like, like soft cashmere wool just brushing my face. I can still remember it now. And I said, who's coming? He says, Jesus has come. He's standing between you. And they said, all right, Lord, we'll go. <laughs> <laughs> and they were gone. That was it. It was all over. But during that, that gruesome night, I had, if you can understand me, these demons were so manifested and the, the filthiness of them was so invading the atmosphere that I felt for a little while what it was like to be a perverted, sex-driven homosexual, a perverted, sex-driven heterosexual. I felt the foulness of this man coming over me like a dirty wash. And, and when it was all over and these demons had gone, I went to the shower and I washed and I washed and I washed to try and get rid of the, of the sensation of this. I thought, man, if that's one demonized man, what must it have been like for Jesus? He took all our sins in his body on the tree. He who knew no sin became sin. Now here's something else which I only understood a few years ago. Because in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7 it says this, clearly talking about Gethsemane. It says that he cried out to God, with strong crying and tears. And then it says, he was heard because he feared. And I couldn't understand that because he did, that he, he cried out that he might be saved from death. That, that's the phrase I left out. He might be saved from death. And he was heard in that he feared. I thought, well, but he did die. And then as I was looking more closely at the Greek text, and in the Greek language there are little words called prepositions. We don't have anything like them in English, but certain prepositions, we do have prepositions, but not like these Greek ones, because some of them have movement. And one of them, a little preposition that's got two letters, ek, E-K, it has the idea of being inside something, almost like a prisoner. And then you come up out from within that by which you are held. Now that's the preposition that's used here. So Jesus wasn't praying, oh God, I don't want to die. He was praying that death would not be able to hold him, which is a very different prayer. That even though he was going to die this terrible death, he would come up out from within death. And he was heard. So what I saw was that that battle of Gethsemane, and you need to hear me on this because this is the way that you and I have got to get into that same life. The only way that Jesus rose from the dead was by the power of the faith he had for his resurrection even before he went to the cross. 
If ever you've heard me teach on faith, and if you haven't, then I do recommend that you get some of those sets of tapes. Read the fight of faith and learn what it means when, when I teach that faith is the title deed. Because that's the word that's used in the Greek. It's the, it's, the, it's the title deed of things hopeful. And Jesus got the title deed for his resurrection before he ever went to the cross. It was a done deal in the spirit, although it had not yet obviously become manifested in time, but it was already settled. And the language of faith is always that things are completed in the past perfect tense in the spirit realm before they'll ever become manifested in this time-space world. You've got to know it's done in the heavenlies before it'll be manifested here on earth. Does that make sense to you? Like Jesus said, whatever you bind on earth, it will be because it has already been bound in heaven. That's literally what the Greek says. So Jesus was already risen from the dead in spirit before he ever went to the cross. He had his resurrection by faith. And the reason that he rose from the dead and experienced the power of the glory of the Father was because of his faith activity. And the more you study the life of Jesus, the more you marvel at him as this amazing, wonderful man of faith. On the cross, while he's being crucified, he's not groaning in pain and crying out, oh God, help me, but he's, all, he's a warrior right to the last minute of his earthly life. And on the cross, he's obtaining, by faith, the resurrection of the nations. He's obtaining the nations. He's quoting Psalm 2. And you said, ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. He says, Father, I thank you for the nations. He says it from the cross. He sees the church, says, I'll praise you in the midst of this great congregation. And he's, got, he's, he's seeing all these things on the cross, obtaining them by faith. He's stripping the devil of all that the devil has. He's taking these title deeds and sticking them in his back pocket. And when he's stripped the devil of everything and nothing's left at all, he says, right, now you've got nothing left. It's time for me to die. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And he cried out, it's finished! It's paid for. Nothing to pay. I've got it all back. All that Adam lost by his disobedience, I've gained back my, my obedience. And now you're going to see something new. Because that's not the end. That's the finishing off of the cancelling of the debt. Of all the handwriting of the ordinances which was against us. That was one great, powerful, mighty work of the cross. But that just brings us to level ground. Now he's going to go way beyond where Adam never was because he never earned the right by 30 years of obedience. He was now going to ascend into the heavenlies and be something glorious that man has never, ever, ever been before. But you've got to understand the power of the cross and what it did to wipe out all legal right of Satan to have any hold over us anymore. Amen? Oh, just, just go and ponder it. it. It says in Hebrews 3, it's a lovely phrase, it says, let's consider Jesus, the apostle and the high calling of our faith. And, and the word in the Greek, it, it's got this idea of sitting, you know what it's like in Texas, you get some fantastic sunsets and you get some fantastic starry nights. You get out of the town, get into like, you know, the, the, the hill country of Texas. It's a wonderful place to go. And then what you do is you sit down. And, and this is what the Greek word means. It says sit down. I'm sorry, I'm ruining the video. I better go and sit. <laughs> I'll do it here. You sit down. 
and then you stargaze. That's what it literally means, just stargaze. Just look at Jesus the way you would look at the stars. Take in the wonder of them. Take, I mean, have you ever done that? On a st- I said, God, you just spoke, and all these universes sprang into being. If you get a telescope, you realize the, the, the multitude of, of galaxies, every galaxy. I mean, our Earth is just a speck in one galaxy. And our galaxy is, is just, well, the sun of our, of our universe is just one star in this vast galaxy. There's probably a hundred million stars like the sun in our galaxy. And there are probably something like a hundred million galaxies scattered through 18 billion light years of space. Now, that's, that's my God. Can you see why God said to Abraham, Abraham, come outside and look at the stars. And he says, yeah, Lord. He said, now, do you think it's really a problem for me to give your wife a child in her old age? <laughs> I mean, get a sense of perspective of your problems. How am I going to get $500,000 for my new building? Well, come out and look at the stars. <laughs> it's, a push, it's a pushover. One minute they were not there, the next minute they were. And you think half a million dollars is a problem to your God? Come on. Get out of your littleness and get into another and, and see this. And then, then you spend your time looking at Jesus and just see what he did for us at the cross. Just comprehend it. Let it soak in. Because until you've taken in the full power of his death or the weight of his death, you can never take in the full power of his resurrection. You see, the disciples never went anywhere preaching the raising from the dead of Lazarus. And yet, the raising of Lazarus, physically, was a greater miracle. How long was Lazarus in the tomb? For how long was Jesus in the tomb? What happened to Lazarus's body? It rotted. What happened to Jesus's body? It wasn't allowed to see corruption. You see, the power of the resurrection is not in the miracle of a dead man being made alive. That's a minuscule part of it. But the power of the resurrection is, first of all, comprehending the way that he died. Because laden with all this sin, the man Christ Jesus was millions of times and millions of times more liable and guilty to to death than any other man. Can you see that? In his death, he was so sin-laden, not with his own sin, but with the sin of all Adam's race, death had more claim over him, millions and millions of times over, and death could draw him down into hell, millions and millions and millions of times deeper than any other man. If there was anyone who should never have risen from the dead, it was Jesus. But he was raised from the dead. By the power of or the Bible calls it the glory of the Father. The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead shall also cause you and I to walk in units of life. And the power that raised him from the dead was the glory of the Father. Because when he came up out of death, he wasn't... You see, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, I don't want to dishonor this wonderful man of God, but let's imagine before he died that Lazarus had a few problems. He had a bit of a short temper, maybe. Maybe he chewed tobacco on the side. <laughs> And he couldn't get up in the morning to pray. He just kept falling asleep. Maybe that was, maybe that was Lazarus. I don't know what he... Anyway, he will forgive me when I see him. <laughs> but the point I'm trying to make is this, that the Lazarus that was raised from the dead was the same as the Lazarus that died. 
whatever problems and habits he had before he died, it was the same man that came to life again. If he'd had a bad temper before he died, he had a bad temper when he was risen. If he'd had a tobacco problem when he died, he had a tobacco problem when he was living. There was nothing changed about him except the dead man had come to life. Got it? But with Jesus, it was totally and gloriously different. And we're going to take our time on that. We're going to, we're going to close now. I just like... Um, you, um, I'm sorry. Nancy, would you come and pray for us? Just close this session for us. Come on, let's just, let's just ponder this and let's God... And then we're going to have oh, a break. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your sweet justice, Jesus. Your word says that you would not crush nor be discouraged nor grow weary until you saw justice and very truth come upon the land. And I thank you, Lord. I thank you that you have died so completely for my sin and for the sin of every person here. And I declare, Lord God, that every person here, that you're calling them to now receive, Lord. That every sin that was ever committed against them, Lord God, has been completely and totally taken care of. Every injustice has been swallowed up by your complete and finished work. I thank you for justice that is so totally complete that as you stood before the Father, his heart is satisfied. And as you stand before man, our hearts are now satisfied. Every debt freed, every debt paid, every debt canceled and released. And I pray now, Lord, as we close this session and prepare for the next one, that every person here, Lord God, would allow every injustice in their life now to bow at the cross. Yes. Yes. That every act of abuse, every cruelty that's come against their life, totally, totally satisfied. That the people of God will say, I am satisfied with my Jesus and his death and in the power of his resurrection. We are free. We live free because we can. We are a free people because of our Jesus. And now that we would live in the risen life of our Jesus, I thank you for the sweet justice of God that satisfies every raging heart in this room. And I thank you, Lord. There'll be no more angry pastors in this room, no more angry pastors' wives. No more, Lord, because every heart that sees you in your glory knows that they need not live as a victim any longer. Yes. It cannot be. It cannot be that we would live as victims any longer. Going through this world, asking someone to please hear of our pitiful past. But to only hear now of the precious future of the kingdom, let it be upon our lips, let our lips be free, let our lips be pure, Lord God, because our hearts have been made free and they've been satisfied. Let it go forth, Lord Jesus. And I thank you for Alan, who can so quickly by the presence of your spirit, make us see what is ours. Now that we'll take it up by the spirit of the living God and proclaim it to the nations, that every person in this earth has been made free. 
we claim it now for them. Yes. And if it's true, Lord, we take it in the heavenlies now. Yes. And we bring it into the earth, Lord God, now. Yes. For this earth. So that all men, women, children may be made free. Yes. And we put the enemies of our God on notice. <laughs> we have seen the justice of the Lord. 